0: Okay, so today um, we're going to be going through, actually, you know, something that I felt earlier today and I felt like perhaps we need to do. um, I should have done this before, but I didn't do it. I'm going to do it now, if that's okay. Um, I talked to different people and um, I have a feeling, and it it could just be my idea, a feeling a a lot of people have been struggling with anxiety lately. Like more than normal, like more than usual. And it's, I don't know if it is that circumstances have changed that trigger uh, that kind of reaction, or if it is like you can't really pinpoint what exactly it is. Um, but I'm wondering if there's people here today who just need prayer for that. I know that I'm one of them. Like in the last few weeks, I've been having not just anxiety, but it's like uh, I haven't been able to sleep very well. Um, and I I I love sleep. So that's very unusual. Um, So I'm wondering if there's something going on. And I know that for myself, I I know I just need prayer. Um, So um, this is what we're going to do. We're just all going to close our eyes. And um, whether this is you, whether this strikes a chord in you, we're going to take a time to pray together as a church for the peace of God to be our stronghold that no weapon against uh, formed against us can prosper that when we remain in God and who he is, uh, we are able to weather the storms. We're able to remain in a place that is unshakable. And so let's take just 30 seconds, 30 seconds to just pray for yourself or to pray for a neighbor. And I'll just close us in prayer. Father, we thank you, God, that in all these things, you are more than enough. You're sufficient, God. You're sufficient, God. You're sufficient, Father. You're sufficient, Father, We oh, got to remind us. you the God who us. Father, we lift up this prayer to you and we ask God that you would be the Lord over our hearts, Lord over our minds, Lord over our emotional state, Lord over our sleep. We thank you, Father, that you care about these things, that this is not a minor thing to you, that this is not unspiritual for us to ask from a good father who longs to give us good gifts. So we pray, God, that the peace that transcends all understanding would guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus, that this would be a real power, that it would not be an abstract idea, but this would be a real power that is available to us as we cling to you and as we declare your word and your lordship over our lives. We ask, God, that you would guard us and protect us, God, that you would um, reign in our thoughts when they begin to spiral, that you would give us rest and comfort, God, when we uh, are unable to. To sleep in the midst of all this, God, would you make yourself real to us? I thank you, God, that we do not have to fear. We do, not have, we do not have to be anxious. We do not have to try to figure things out on our own because we have a father who takes care of us. So we're grateful, God, for that truth. And we cling on to that truth whenever we're tempted to believe that it is not so. We thank you, God, for your promise over us, your claim and your grip over our lives. We thank you, Father. We look to you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. I'm trusting that I'm trusting that God will do something in our lives and we'll we'll feel it and we'll we'll know that He is real. Um, so today, um, today's message is kind of a follow up on last week. If you're sitting in the back, I hate to do this right now as well. If you're sitting in the back, it's going to be kind of hard for you to see the slides. So at any point. Instead of, like, doing this thing, or, like, I I see it all from here, right? Instead of doing this thing, there's, like, a lot of empty chairs up here. And it's going to be for your benefit because um, we have quite a bit of slides today. Um, So we're going to really quickly review from last week. We talked about the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew 5 through 7. And um, when we take a cursory look at it, if we're not careful, we can turn this list into a list of do's and don'ts. Like pray like this, fast like this, say things this way, deal with divorce this way, deal with finances this way, deal with conflict in this way. And if we don't, we're not careful, that's all we walk out with when we read the Sermon on the Mount. But we saw how the gospel is more than just a washing of the outside of the tomb. It's more than a washing of the outside of of the cup. It's more than just behavior modification. It requires a new heart. We did a quick sweep through Matthew 5 through 7, and then we went backwards. If you guys remember, Uh, this is kind of something we talked about. Uh, Last week, if we were to start from the very, very end of Matthew 7 and slowly work our way towards the beginning of Matthew 5, we start out with the fact that Jesus has authority and his words have power. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a guru, a sensei or whatever you want to call it. He is Lord. And so he has authority and his words have power. And not only that, his followers follow his words. So we'd like to kind of define what a follower means. We like to kind of, you know, like, well, I heard the gospel once. We're like, well, I attend church once in a while. And we like to define what a follower is. But Jesus makes it very clear. A follower is someone who not just hears my word, but actually does my word. So if it doesn't make a difference in your life, if it isn't something that you hear and you have to apply in your life, then most likely you're not a follower his words demand action. And so this means that his followers live differently. You're going to look different from the world as relevant as you want to be as relatable as you want to be in the world. There will be something inherently different about you because you belong to another kingdom. And it is a kingdom that reflects the character and the values of its king. We do not get to define what the kingdom of God is like. Jesus, he is the prototype. He is the example that we ought to follow in order to understand his kingdom. And then fourth, if we don't, uh, it won't just mean that we do things differently, um, but it stems from the fact that we have different values. We have a completely different value system. And this isn't just because we're trying harder or just we're adhering to a list or something like that, but it's because our identity we who are followers of his, we have a new identity based on a different kingdom. That's where it all stems from. Does it make sense? This is just all review from last week. So this week, we're going to be looking at the Beatitudes. We're going to take a closer look at what the life of a Christ follower looks like. So I encourage you to um, really follow along with your Bibles. I think, um, you know, I, I love it when people follow along with their Bibles because... You can see for yourself. It's in my Bible. It's in your Bible. I'm not making anything up. I think sometimes it's really powerful for you to actually see it with your own eyes. So it's called the Beatitudes. All it means is um, the blessings. So what it looks like for a life that is blessed by the Lord. Uh, beatitude it comes from the Latin beatus or something like that. Um, (laughs) So all it means it's blessings. But if you want to sound really smart, you just say beatitudes. Um, So Matthew 5, 1, it starts with this. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is a kingdom of heaven, We're going to pause here for a little bit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? That is a very weird way to, um, it's a very weird way to, to, um, word something. If we look at the Bible, the Bible has specific promises tied to poverty. So if you look at Psalm 140, it says, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and justice for the poor. So there is a promise that comes with being poor. And that is that God himself will take up your cause. You will not have to fight for your own cause, but God himself will bring about justice for the poor. If you look at Psalm 113, it says he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means when you've gotten to the point where you confess that you are morally and spiritually bankrupt outside of God. It means that you admit that all your feeble attempts at earning acceptance from a holy God are nothing but filthy rags. This is Paul's language, right? It's not everything. Even if you were to try your hardest from now until the day you die, even if you were to do everything you can to be as righteous and as holy as possible, all those things outside of the power and the mercy of God at work in your life is nothing but filthy rags. And that all, and it's not just the good things, but also even your bad things, your rebellious acts of defiance and running away from God. They are not bringing you greater freedom, but actually greater bondage. Sometimes we have the sense of like, man, God's keeping me away from the fun stuff. Like, man, if God didn't hold me back, I would actually encounter true freedom. Like the gospel is so restraining, but if I were to leave this behind, I would experience true freedom. But the gospel says that that is actually true bondage. You're just in bondage to something else other than the truth. You're in bondage to the whims of the flesh. You are in bondage to your desires. You're in bondage to the enemy. You're in bondage to a lot of different things, but that is not true freedom. Poverty in spirit, it is saying, God, I need you. It's very simple. Have you ever been in that place where you've tried as hard as you might, where you've tried every solution possible? You've had every difficult conversation. You've worked out numbers. You've gone to different doctors. You've tried everything you can, everything in your power, but you come to the point where you just hit a wall when you realize that I'm not going to be able to fix this. And that is the precise moment when you can say, God, I need you outside of you. I am nothing. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. When you realize that what's inside you outside of God is plainly selfish, it is self-seeking, self-promoting, self-interested, self-protecting, self-aggrandizing, self-glorifying. Outside of God, this is all we have. So when you reach that point, when you have to turn to God, be comforted in knowing that you now qualify to inherit the kingdom of heaven. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is the poor in spirit who attain the kingdom of heaven, not the proud, not the ones who have all the degrees, not the ones with the right personality makeup or the skill sets or have been to church for the longest. It is the poor in spirit. Perhaps we can rephrase it this way. Only the poor in spirit, those who acknowledge their need of God, are able to see the value and treasure the kingdom of heaven in contrast To the enticement of the kingdoms of this world. If you were to look at the book of Revelation. Jesus rebukes the church of Sardis by saying this. You think that you're rich. You think that you're affluent. You think that you have influence. If only you would realize that you're actually poor. Wretched. Naked. Then you would turn to me. And I would fill you up. It's that moment of acknowledging your poverty of spirit. That needs to happen in order for us to come to God. In the church of Sardis, it is their external riches that blinded them to the fact that they're poor in spirit and in need of God. And how often does this happen in our own lives? When things are going well, when you have all these praise reports, when life is much better than you ever anticipated. This is exactly in those moments where we're tempted to think like, oh, you know, I could do this thing without God. I don't really need to pray. I don't really need his word. I don't really need his people. I think I'm good it's in those moments where we have to be reminded the most that actually outside of God, I'm poor in spirit. And it says that for the poor in spirit, the the promise for them is the kingdom of heaven. And this is what the Bible says about the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 13, a few chapters later, it says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. It is it is this kind of person who has eyes to see that it is something too good to pass. It is worth the investment. It brings genuine joy and fulfillment in a way that this world can't. Now this is this is the thing. There's a sense of sacrifice and cost, right? Following Jesus there is sacrifice and there is cost. It's not just all dandy, right? But there's not a sense of man, I'm getting the short end of the deal. Like what I'm putting in is not worth what I'm getting out of it. There isn't a sense of that. On the contrary, there's a sense of man, if only people knew truly how much how much value this has. If only people knew that this is actually something worth selling everything else for. It's that kind of mentality. So there are testimonies of people, you know, like person after person who have reached the pinnacle of worldly success, whatever their area of expertise is. It could be enrich his fame, the respect and the envy of others. They've reached that pinnacle who will testify that all of it leaves them feeling empty inside, that they're inwardly tortured by the appearance of happiness, but the lack of inner peace and contentment. This is what happens when we simply just strive to attain the kingdom of the world and not the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is different. A few chapters later, Matthew says, truly, I say to you, unless you are converted. E. Well, yes, unless you're converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is when Jesus offers the kingdom of heaven to a rich young man who had attained the great success that he had wanted all his life. And yet he knew that he was missing something because he was coming to Jesus and saying, what must I do? There's something that I'm missing. I don't know what it is, but there's something that I'm missing. And Jesus answers, you need to give everything that you have to the poor and you need to follow me. And he walked away sad because he felt like this was something that he couldn't pay, a cost that he couldn't pay. But those who feel like it will require them to sacrifice more than what they're willing, uh, more than what they will be gaining, they don't know the value. They don't know the eternal riches that the kingdom of heaven has to offer. And so this is why when Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount... When he starts the Sermon on the Mount, he starts out with this beatitude. It's because it starts from here. It starts from acknowledging your poverty and spirit before God. You need to acknowledge your poverty and spirit, your absolute dependence on God the Father as your sole provider, your sole reward, your sole satisfaction in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven. All of us have tasted this in some way or another. If we had the perfect church, and the perfect preacher and the perfect praise team and the perfect house churches if we had all of that and we didn't have god we would know that we're missing something we would feel it there'd be something about it that's like you know like sunday was great but you know like there's something that didn't touch me there's something that didn't reach me there's still lack of peace in my heart there's still something that i'm missing This is the antithesis of what the world preaches, because the world preaches climbing up an educational and corporate ladder, becoming more and more independent so that you don't need anyone's help. That is what the world preaches. But here we see how Jesus is turning this completely upside down. It is the most dependent that actually have the greatest riches. The myth of the self-made man, this, this idea of like, You know, like you believe only in yourself and you'll make it or like, look how far I've made it on my own. This is not only hollow in its promises to fulfill our most intimate desires, but it is also deceiving in the picture it paints of what happiness and what success is. Now, Jesus continues on to say, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. So what does it mean to mourn? It can be experiencing deep loss in this lifetime. It can be, you know, a loved one or a dream of a missed opportunity, a health issue. There's something that you're grieving in this life because life is full of mourning because we live in a broken world. But it also refers to when you've died to yourself in order to be alive in Christ. You mourn a certain kind of loss, but you also know that all the pain in this lifetime is a light And momentary affliction in light of the eternal comfort awaiting you in the age to come. So Jesus says that it is precisely for these kind of people that he came. If we look in Isaiah 61, Jesus himself, I mean, Isaiah prophesies about the Messiah to come. And this is what the Messiah's role will be. He's going to be filled with the spirit of God and he's going to come to comfort all who mourn to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And those people, those people that are ministered to by Jesus in this way, they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. So this promise that we're given in Matthew of those who mourn, they will be comforted. It's not just like a pat in the back, like there, there, there. It's so much deeper than that. It's so much greater than that. Jesus Himself will come and fill a hole in your heart that you never even knew you had in this lifetime. And then in the lifetime to come, He's going to bring a comfort that nothing in this side of eternity will be able to give to you. We continue down Matthew 5, and it says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Often people. You know, they equate meekness to weakness. It's like a kind of lame sounding word. Like, you know, you don't want somebody to say like, you know what I love the most about you? It's like, you're so meek. Like, you're like, dang it. (laughs) That's not what I wanted to hear. It feels lame, right? Uh, But meekness isn't weakness. But on the contrary, it is actually great power under the reign of great self-restraint. Under the reign of self, great control. The meek refers to those who don't use their power as a means to advance themselves and put others down. But those who are humble and contrite in heart. They don't need to display their prowess to get what they want. They don't need uh, to exert their dominance over others. But they show meekness and other-centeredness. That is what meekness looks like. Next, in verse 6, we see blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So those who pursue God through the discouragement, through the setbacks, through the inconvenience and the frustrations, they hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. The Bible says that they will be satisfied. I don't know what it is that you know, you're longing for in this world, what your life goals are. But it is so seldom that someone will say, you know what I really want? More than this job, more than this financial security, more than this. Like, I actually want to be righteous. Like, who have you ever heard saying that? Right? Is there anybody who's ever? Okay. Okay. Right. Because, oh yeah. JP, really? (laughs) If that's the action, what I need more than, you know what, what I need more than comfort, what I need more than satisfaction, what I need more than this panning out the way that I thought I wanted, what I need more than all of these things is actually, I want to look more like Christ. Like, I actually want to be more Christ-like. I don't need... You know, I don't precisely need my persecution to end or my conflict to end or, you know, these things to get better. More so than that, I actually need to look more and more like Christ. That is what someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness looks like. They will be satisfied. The world is filled with empty promises, but God promises to satisfy those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And he will deliver on that promise. Next in verse 7, we see, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We know that people who are able to show mercy to one another, they know that they themselves have received mercy first. Right? We see in the the parables, uh, you know, taught by Jesus, there's a servant who was forgiven their debt before a king, a debt that they could actually never repay, and they walk around this life knowing that they're forgiven by God and it is those people who are able to show mercy to someone else. This is a sure sign of those who believe in the gospel. It continues on to say blessed are the poor in uh, sorry, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God, those who are undivided in heart, those who don't lift their souls to another idol. Those who have allowed the word of God to cleanse them from the inside out. Those who keep their hearts in a posture of repentance and of fascination. Verse nine, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Those who are agents of reconciliation. So instead of finding more ways to bring division and hatred and discord and separation, it's those people who are called peacemakers and they shall be called sons of God. It flows from a place of knowing that they themselves have been reconciled to God, the father. So they know that the gap that was between them and a holy God, that itself was bridged, that itself was reconciled. And so they themselves become an agent of reconciliation as well. And this last beatitude, this is probably the one that is hardest for us to understand in Western Christianity. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is a kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So this beatitude is very hard for us to understand in Western Christianity because everything in our lives is geared towards comfort. Like I, I just want to get out of pain. I want to avoid pain and sadness as much as I can. I want to avoid negative emotions as much as I can. But this beatitude, it actually preaches something else. You're actually blessed, which means happy. You're actually happy if you're persecuted for righteousness sake. The last time someone came to me with like, hey, pastor, can you pray for me? I'm having a hard time. I I would never say like. You know what? You're better off this way. You're actually really blessed and you're really happy. That'd be a terrible thing to say as a pastor, but you know, biblically it says it's true. I'm not going to say that. Right. But I'm going to say like, let me pray for you. But Jesus is saying something very, very counter cultural, something that we, we can't really have a, we don't even have a box for in Western Christianity. But let me say something about this verse being persecuted for righteousness sake, this doesn't mean you're just su- suffering the regular discomforts and transitions of life that every person goes through, both believer and unbeliever. So we have to be clear, right, that it's, it's one thing to suffer. And I think all of humanity, we all, if you're human and you have feelings, you have a heart, you have a mind, and you are alive for more than, I don't know, um, you're going to suffer. And so this is a common experience to all mankind, both believer and unbeliever alike. When we're talking about persecution for righteousness sake, it's not just being, you know, suffering the regular discomforts and transitions that every person goes through life. It's being persecuted and actively opposed because of the message you preach and the gospel implications lived out in your life. That's what it means. So this is how Eugene Peterson in the message uh, version. He interprets these beatitudes. This is how he words it. He says, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food. And drink in the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourselves cared for. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and your heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. You're you're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not me. Which one's first? Not only that. Count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer even. Give a cheer like, "woo!" that. (laughs) For though they don't like it, I do. And all heaven applauds. And know that you are in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. Do you guys remember this picture about the cloud of witnesses that cheers us on to run this race with perseverance from Hebrews 12? It's those people who we are in good company of. Whatever it is that you're going through for the gospel, whatever it is that you're going through in your life, there's nothing that hasn't been gone through before. And there's a cloud of witnesses that witness to us, that testify to us that the cost is great, but the reward is greater. And this is the thing from all these Beatitudes. He's not just talking about principles here. Jesus himself, he was the ultimate example of someone walking this path for the rest to follow. He showed ultimate reliance on God, so poverty of spirit. Because he ultimately relied on God as God the Father, as he not only came down for fallen humanity, but became obedient to death, even death on a cross, that we would find life, we'd find riches in him. He was the ultimate one who mourned, not only weeping for Lazarus, his friend, but also the fallen state of mankind, a mourning that led him to lay down his own life. Jesus was the ultimate example of meekness, power under control, not taking power through violence, but through surrender to the father, not opening his mouth as he was being led to the slaughter for the salvation of mankind. Jesus was the ultimate one who hungered and thirsted for righteousness of mankind, that we would be restored to right standing before God, even when we didn't deserve it. He was the one who displayed ultimate mercy, securing for us what we could never earn, He was the one who was pure in heart, having an undivided heart of compassion towards man and complete trust in God the Father. He was the ultimate peacemaker, not only reconciling the conflict between man and God, but the, uh, sorry, man and man, but the infinite breach between the holy God and broken and sinful mankind. And lastly, he was the ultimate one who was persecuted for righteousness sake. His murder premeditated And executed by the very ones he came to save. So Jesus is us to inherit the kingdom of heaven and his leadership is a way of the cross. And it allows us to inherit the kingdom of heaven. It allows us to be comforted. It allows us to receive an inheritance on the earth. It brings us satisfaction. It secures mercy on our behalf. It allows us to see God It allows us to be called sons of God. And it sets us high upon a rock. This is what Jesus has done for us. He opened up a path. He walked the path for us to uh, for us to receive all these different promises. So, what happens when you live like this? When you live in the way that Jesus lived? This is the the picture that Jesus paints. So, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under. A people's feet salt of the earth um it's a very interesting you know picture that we we're given it connotes three different things one is flavor um we live in a world where like spices and all of that you know is like readily available but back then this was a big deal like can you imagine like how bland everything everything was without salt right so it talks about flavor, it brings out different colors, it brings out nuances in the world that aren't there the salt of the earth isn't there. It talks about value. If you think about the word salary, it actually comes from salt. They used to actually pay people with salt. We'd feel gypped if they did that to us today, rightly so. But they used salt as currency back in the day. And so when you're saying you're the salt of the earth, you have value. You bring value to the earth, your witness, your lifestyle, the way that you walk at the gospel. It brings value into the earth. And lastly, it talks about preservation, preservation, the sense of salvation back right now. We live in a world where we have, you know, refrigeration readily available. But back then they didn't. The only way to preserve something, it was to salt it. So saying that the gospel witness of believers here on this earth, it preserves something that is decaying. It preserves something that is constantly corrupting. That is the witness of believers here on this earth. So when Jesus says you are the salt of the earth, this is no light matter. This is not a small deal. He continues on to say you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. So if we look at the word light, it's it's Greek, it's foes. So it means different things. Life, goodness, the presence of God. This is the same Greek word that Jesus uses to refer to himself. In John 1, when he says, you know, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, all that. And then he moves on, you know, uh, verse 4 and 5. It says, in him, in Jesus, was life, and that life was the foes of all mankind. That light was the, uh, that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, the foes shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not Overcome it. It's that very same word, the witness, uh, the testimony that Jesus lived out is the same testimony that we ought to live out. And the promise is that darkness will not overcome it. So imagine if we go back to um, if we go back to the verse. Let's use analogy of setting up furniture in your house. If you were to look at your house during nighttime, and you realize, oh, okay, there's like a dark spot in my living room right here and right here, your immediate thought is like, that's where light should go. Right? You're not thinking I'm going to cluster all the lights that I have and shove them into this corner. And that's going to be a good use of light. No, you look for the darkest spots in your home where you're going to need light. And it is precisely there that you would put a light. It is precisely there that you put a lampstand. stand. That is the same way that God operates. That is why I believe, you know, Christians are called to the nations. Christians are called to where the gospel isn't being preached. It is not just so you can do something really edgy and super. They need the light of the, you know, as, you know, a, a Christian. It is because it's dark. It's dark out there. They need the light of the gospel. That's why we're called to go out. Let, let me ask you this question. What could be a lampstand? What could be a lampstand? What could actually take a light and display it for the world to see? So immediately in our thoughts, it would be like, okay, this is my, my, uh, my plan for my life. I'm going to become like the best financier. Like I'm going to become the best chef. I'm going to become the best teacher. I'm going to become the best, whatever. And that platform is going to be my lampstand. Like once I'm placed there, I can shine the gospel. And you're seeing this happen all over the world, like athletes, you know, are talking about the gospel. You know, um, inter- people in entertainment and media, they're talking about the gospel as well. And that is a good lampstand. But have you ever thought about your sufferings as a lampstand? Like that being a prime opportunity to light, uh, to shine the light of the gospel. To show the world that Jesus is worthy still. Sometimes we think about it only in a very one-dimensional way. And those things are right. Influence is good. Success is good. Excellence is all these things we need to uh, steward better in our lives so that when we preach the gospel, we'll have influence. We'll have people who actually believe that our word is, is, you know, has credit to it. But at the same time, we can't ignore a whole other side of things. And that is that persecution, hardship, suffering, loss, that itself is also a lampstand. This is what Spurgeon says about a lampstand. He said, What a lampstand was found for Christianity in the martyrdoms of the Colosseum, in the public burnings by pagans and papists, and in all the other modes by which believers in Christ were forced into fame. Isn't that crazy? Like These were moments in life where they had an option. I can show the glory of God not when things are good, but especially when things are bad. This is my moment to shine my light. It's a very different way to think about influence. It's a very different way to think about a lampstand. When we look at the word set on a hill, it's actually the same word, same Greek word as mountain. So we're talking about something that connotes prominence. It denotes a place of worship, a high place, not just you know, Christian, but also in pagan worship, they would always look for high places in order for them to worship their pagan gods. It talks about visibility. It talks about influence and it also talks about protection up on a hill is where they had fortresses as well. This is where they felt most protected from the enemy. So when we're talking about a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. We're talking about so many different ways in which the world We'll see Christianity being lived out by Christians who believe the gospel. There's going to be prominence, a place of worship, visibility, influence, and protection in the way that we live our lives. And then it continues on to say, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory, not to you, not to your church, not to your self-discipline, not to your resume, but give glory to God, your father who is in heaven. So we must first keep in mind that Jesus himself lived this life and he was the salt of the earth and he was the light of the world. But as people who have been recipients of this light, people who have been recipients of this mercy, the salvation, God calls us now not just to be recipients, but actually givers, givers of mercy, givers of light. We are ones who are called to be givers in of light into dark places. So I want you to follow me visually. This is what it looks like. This is really cool. Okay. I'm going to dazzle you with my artistic abilities once again. All right. So this is what it looks like. This is Jesus. All right. I know. I know. took me a long time. Okay. Uh, So this is Jesus. Visually, this is what Jesus is doing. So he's preaching on the kingdom of heaven, right? I heard some scoffing on this side. Um, this is what Jesus looks like. This is Jesus in Matthew 5.1. And he's about to launch into a three-chapter-long teaching about the kingdom of heaven. But he didn't just do it anywhere. He actually went up a... ta He actually went up a mountain. Do you guys catch that in verse 1? He climbed up a horos. Horos, the same Greek word for city on a hill. City on a mountain, that same word. He climbed up that city, I mean, that that hill, that mountain. So visually, right, this is what we're looking at. If we were to zoom out, this is Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And then he's preaching about a city on a hill while that is actually happening there. People that are hearing his words and are now going to be doing the word people that are going to be salt and light in the world. So he's not just talking about a city on a hill. He's building a city on a hill as he's preaching about the kingdom of heaven. Wow, this is just a masterpiece, right? It's like there's tears to the eyes. They, wow. It's a very patronizing, very patronizing clap. I don't know, man. So when we think about the city on a hill, the city on a mountain, it's not, we're not just talking about the disciples sitting at Jesus' feet, receiving this teaching. We're talking about something much greater. He is starting a kingdom with this kind of teaching. Immediately, what would come to mind is actually the temple of God in Mount Zion. Immediately, this should come to mind. This is a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. This is the salt of the earth. This is the light of the world. And they see, they have a visual manifestation of that. We're not just talking about even the holy city back then, which is believers proclaiming the name of Yahweh in the midst of a pagan world. But we're also talking about the Jerusalem that is to come. It is people who have been blood bought People who have been brought into the kingdom of light to proclaim God's kingdom. We see in Isaiah 2 how Isaiah talks about in the last days, the mountain, the horrors of the Lord. The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream into it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up. The mountain of the Lord, the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. We see later in the Bible in Revelation 21, it's not just referring to the physical temple and the city on this side of eternity, but also the eternal city that is set on a hill. And we see in Revelation 21, it says, um, one of the seven, yes, one of the seven angels said to me, come, I will show you the bride the bride right so the people of god i will show you the bride the wife of the lamb and he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high a horos same word same hill same mountain a mountain great and high and coming down out of heaven from god it shone with the glory of god I did not see a temple in this city, that same word city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. This is the promise that is written about a city on a hill a city on a hill that will usher in the coming of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to close with this. Let me close with this, this exhortation that we talked about last week. We read, uh, we talked about last week in Matthew seven, 24, how Jesus says, everyone who does, uh, who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came And the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Now, this verse, it should be very reminiscent of a different verse. Of a different verse that we see later on in Matthew, in a passage where Jesus looks at his disciples and he asks them, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some say that you're, you know the prophet, that you're our teacher. And then he asked point blank. He asked Peter, but who do you say that I am? And then Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Jesus is looking at a fallen, repentant, restored life that professes the lordship of Christ. And he says that on this confession that I am Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, on this confession, I will build my church. And no discouragement, no persecution, no loss, no threat of your personhood, not even the weight of your own sins and shortcomings will prevail against this bride. Built upon the foundation of Christ. So this is the hope that we have. And I'm going to end with this today. If we could have the praise scene come back up. This is the hope that we have. That Christ. Who is our ultimate peacemaker. Who is our ultimate comforter. Our ultimate salvation. He has set. His church on a rock. And nothing the devil can do. Nothing the world can do, nothing your circumstances can dictate will shake that. Because you are the city on the hill. You are the city on that horos that the world would know the worthiness, the worthiness of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, the comfort, the forgiveness of Christ, the satisfaction, and the reward that is found in Christ. Those who are poor in spirit, those who are mourning those who are pure in heart, those who are peacemakers and givers of mercy, and even those who testify of the worth of Christ at the cost of persecution, they will remain. Even when you feel the weakest, even when you feel like everything happening in this world will shake you, the promise of God is that you will remain. All other kingdoms, all other powers, all other names will find an end but Christ and his church will remain forever. Amen. Amen. Let's close in prayer.